Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and I'm so excited that you've joined me for today's show. We're going to be talking about something that I've talked about all the time, but I've never written about it at teachmetotalk.com or, well, I take that back. It might be a little hint of this in a post I did previously this year, earlier this summer, but I've never written a lot about it, and I've never done this as a whole topic, a whole show, (laughs) so we're going to do that today. But before we get to that very exciting topic, let me make some announcements. The 2015 conference schedule is out. We're doing four cities or four dates in November and December, and let me run through those with you. I'll be in Indianapolis on Thursday, November 12th, teaching Building Verbal Imitation in Toddlers, which is a fantastic course for re-examining how you treat expressive language skills in toddlers. So many times we just kind of go on automatic pilot and we think because it's speech therapy that we should just go for words, words, words on the very first day when so many of our little clients are not ready for that. They're not developmentally there yet. They have to do other things, learn how to consistently imitate at easier earlier levels than they do when they're developmentally ready to use single words. So that course walks you through that whole process, lots of videos of children, and again, not just the kids who are easy, who talk the first day of therapy, but children who are struggling developmentally and who really need those prerequisites and need us to spend time working toward those. So if you don't know about that approach and what those steps are, and if you can't really definitively nail those, then you need to come to that course. (laughs) And that is day one of Indianapolis. And again, that's Thursday, November 12th. On Friday, November 13th, oh, I'm so excited, I'm teaching Is It Autism? Recognizing and Treating Autism in Toddlers, and that's a brand new course. It's The information was included or a start of the, the basis for this course is from my ebook of the same name, or it's Is It Autism? Helping Parents. Uh, recognize autism in toddlers or red flags for autism in toddlers. You can get that on Amazon, on Kindle, if you've not gotten that already. It's a, a great, great tool, particularly for parents who are wondering, could this be autism? Is this more than late talking? So super book. And the whole time I was writing that book this summer, I kept thinking, man, this is this book is for parents, but therapists need this information too. Because so many times when you are a practicing clinician, meaning that you don't really serve on, uh, or you know, you certainly assess children, we all do that, but you don't really serve on a multidisciplinary team or in a facility where autism is routinely diagnosed. And sometimes we get in the habit of thinking, I'm not qualified to do that. I can't really definitively say objectively for sure today if this child is on the spectrum and we somehow have lulled ourselves into thinking that that's outside the scope of our practice as speech language pathologist and I'm just here to tell you (laughs) when you have additional training and when you have spent some time to hone your skills in that area 
you are certainly one of the professionals who can contribute to reliably identifying autism, even in toddlers, even in kids as young as two, even in children. Really, really, if you're serious about looking for the markers and separating typical development and that full range of normal from the big diagnostic markers that professionals use across the board to diagnose autism, then you're able to do that. You're able to really help parents move toward that and, and think about that diagnosis as a possibility for why their child isn't communicating. And the course has fantastic information and, again, takes the DSM-5 criteria and walks you through that. So you are confident in your own abilities. Now, again, does this mean that you're going to be <laughs> suddenly qualified to go out and start diagnosing, you know, the, the kids who are on your caseload with autism without referring them to someone else or getting input from another team of professionals. I'm not saying that, but I am saying that you will be immensely more confident in your diagnostic skills when you take the time to really wrap your head around what those features are and what the official diagnostic criteria looks like. And so I'm teaching that material. I have tons of video examples so that when we're talking about a child who doesn't have joint attention or we're talking about a child who is exhibiting an unusual kind of self-stimulatory behavior, we might have called it something else, but when we boil it down, it's a self-stem. And so really understanding what those terms mean and how those things can look in very young children is so, so, so important. So I'm thrilled to teach this course. I'm, uh, I'll share in just a second the other locations where I'll be this fall with that. And let me just say, several people have, after seeing the course schedule, have emailed and said, you're not going to be in my city, but how can I get that autism course? How can I get that information? We'll be putting that on DVD um, like we have our other courses after I've taught it a time or two <laughs> to kind of work the kinks out and really be sure that that's a, a finished, buttoned-up version. So um, look for that late this year or early 2016 for that course to be on DVD. But let me share where I'm teaching it live. I already said I'll be in Indianapolis on Thursday, November 12th for Building Verbal Imitation in Toddlers and then the Autism course on Friday, November 13th. I'm teaching that day one, day two format again in December in Illinois, in Bloomington Normal. And those are two cities, if you're not familiar with Illinois geography, those are two cities that are side by side. It's a cute little area. I'm really excited to go there, but it's more central in Illinois. Lots of times providers in states complain, and I've heard this from so many people in Illinois, they'll say, why do you only teach in Chicago or People only go to Chicago. Those of us who don't live in the city and who don't want to drive there feel left out. And so I'm excited about teaching there in this new city for me, and I'll be teaching the Steps to Building Verbal Imitation in Toddlers on Thursday, December 10th, and then on Friday, December 11th, uh, is it autism? Now, I'm also going to be in Charleston, West Virginia on Friday, November 20th, and I'm just teaching the autism course there. So that's Friday the 20th for Is It Autism? And then I have two dates in Greater Chicago, and we actually are out in Warrenville, Naperville, 
uh, which is still Chicago to me, but I understand those of you who live in downtown Chicago do not consider that <laughs> to be part of Chicago, but the rest of us do. And so I'm teaching Is It Autism on Thursday, December 3rd, and then repeating it again on Friday, December 4th. So Is It Autism? So those dates are uh, where we'll be the rest of the year, and I hope to see you in one of those cities. You can get full registration information and other important details uh, at teachmetotalk.com there on the homepage. Or if you are having difficulty locating information about it, just shoot me an email, laura at teachmetotalk.com, and I will be more than happy to point you in the right direction. And let me just mention, um, there, we have had some questions about early discounts and group discounts and all that. Our courses are so much cheaper than other nationally. <laughs> Uh, other companies that present nationally that I feel like our rate is great, but if you have four or more together and need a group, want to find out about a group rate, there's some little qualifications for that, just email me and I'll get that information to you too. We also accept purchase orders. If those are the two most frequent questions that I get all the time. Uh, and you can always get that early registration discount if you'll register 14 days or longer before the event. So that early registration discount's a good one too. All right, let's move on to today's topic. Today we're going to be talking about five things you can learn about a toddler with a wind-up toy. And as I mentioned that I, I know I've included this just as a little sentence in a post that I wrote this summer, but I've thought about it a lot and I've talked to a couple of parents and maybe even another therapist or two, about what we can learn, what we can tease out about a toddler's development in just a few minutes with this one toy. Now, certainly you can do it with other toys as well. I'm not saying this is the be-all toy, but it's so convenient because it's little. You don't need to, uh, you know, a full uh lands in or L.L. Bean bag to carry in a wind-up toy. It's something you can stick in your pocket. And it's something that I almost always use um, in an assessment with a toddler, particularly when I'm getting to know them. And I'll tell you another time I use wind-up toys are to measure a child's progress as we go. So if I'm thinking, man, I think his, his the skills that we're going to talk about, let's just pick one of those, you know, I think his joint attention is better. And using something like a wind-up toy as my control, so to speak, or something that I don't use all the time, a toy that I'm, I might not use in a therapy activity, but I'm just going to use it from time to time to really kind of check to see has joint attention improved, does he understand gestures now. All of those things that we teach in therapy and that we work on and work on and work on, certainly having an activity that you kind of save that you don't do all the time in therapy to go back and spot check a toddler's progress. Uh, it's something that I love to do, and the wind-up toy is what I do with it most often. But let's talk about how we use wind-up toys for an evaluation or an early meeting with a child. And in so many states now, if you work for or contract with or um, have anything to do with seeing children through state early intervention programs, lots of states have gone to the model that a primary level evaluator or someone, an initial evaluator, in Indiana, they call them the ed team people. They're assessed by therapists who won't work with the child on an ongoing basis. So you may get the child to do to be the, the lead therapist or the regular 
therapist after someone else has already assessed them. And you may not even be permitted to repeat your own assessment. You're just kind of going with what you have and what the initial person who determined that child to be eligible, what they said about the child. So you're going in that first visit or two kind of cold <laughs> because you haven't – Again, because of the way your system is designed, you haven't done that initial assessment. And a lot of therapists in that situation will go ahead and do the assessment, even if they're not technically paid for that, because they feel like, I need that initial evaluation information that I provide, that I want to rely on, rather than looking at that snapshot that someone else wrote up in a report and that's certainly fine and again you can't really make the rules in your own system but a lot of therapists you know again will have to kind of hit the ground running because they're not allowed or or don't go ahead and perform that initial evaluation on their own so this might be a good activity too for you to kind of start with when you're first uh, working with a child and let me just say too um, this you know, it, it's for the purpose of assessment, for the purpose of you really looking in a very functional way with how this child reacts to your introduction of a novel toy. And again, wind-up toys are great for this because they're little. You can, like I said before, that uh, you can stick them in your pocket and kind of pull it out when you need it. Uh, but you get so much information from from just this one toy. So let's talk about. First of all, what we're looking for, the first thing we want to see is that a child can exhibit joint attention. Now, what do I mean by joint attention? Sometimes I'll say a word like attention to a parent, and I haven't really emphasized that I'm talking about the child's ability to shift his attention back and forth between what he's paying attention to and me or his parents, meaning that how he includes other people in whatever he's doing. And sometimes I'll use the word like attention and say, you know, I'm really worried about his joint attention. And mom doesn't, isn't familiar with that term. And so she'll say something like, gosh, he really pays great attention. You know, he can look at his one little book for like 30 minutes. And we're not talking about that there, uh, that particular skill. You know, and in that case, a mom would say, yeah, his attention is good. And, hey, I would agree attention to task for that child would be very good. But what we're referring to when we use a term like joint attention is a child's ability to share that experience with you. And there's always, again, when I talk about this or when I teach this, I always want to remember that, to say that there's a triad of attention required, meaning that when when we're looking at a child's a joint attention skills, we need to be observing three things or, or three requirements. First of all, the child, and then the other person who's there, who our intention is for communication to happen so that that experience is shared and that other person is included, and then an object or an event, um, something that would that the two of you could share. And, again, it could be focused on a toy, like here it would be with the wind-up toy, or it could be something, you know, like looking at, uh, you know, a motorcycle that's going down the road or, a, you know, looking at a squirrel, something that's more like an event rather than a particular object that the child is holding. So 
Um, but as we're talking about with this toy, I want to see if when I bring out the wind-up toy and let you know, all, the great thing about those wind-up toys are that you wind it up and then the toy does something. Bill, the toy will walk or will flip over or I have a cute little monkey right now who claps symbols together, which I think is just precious, or any, whatever, you know, if it's a wind-up fish, it might be that the fish, if you're in water, that the fish would swim or move through the water. And so what we're looking for in joint attention is not only that the child notices the toy, but that the child notices me or his mom or whoever's participating with us with with playing with this wind-up toy together. So we want to see how a child can shift his attention between looking for a reaction from the other person, which is really, really important. Sometimes children with autism will really struggle with joint attention. And again, they may become almost hyper-focused on an object so that when they get something, especially something they love or something that's new that they've never seen before, that they're extremely curious about, their, all of their attention, all of their focus is directed solely toward the object or the activity. They can't include you, especially at the beginning, because they're so locked on what the object is doing or something has caught their attention. And so that really is a core deficit in autism. Uh, is a child who isn't who really doesn't share joint attention routinely, who leaves other people out. It might uh, parents kind of describe children like this as, you know, either he's hyper focused on it or he loves it so much he can't really pay attention to anything else. That's like a child who might watch a DVD and never look up to see someone else coming in the room, or if there's a loud noise, he somehow he seems like he doesn't hear that, he doesn't process it because he's so hyper-focused on the object or the activity, whatever he's doing. And so children, again, with autism, that's that's one of the things, that's one of the red mark, red flags, it's one of the markers that lets us know that they're having a difficult time with the social part of communication. And I'll just tell you, toddlers who struggle to include other people like that, especially their parents, and especially with things that are cool but they need help to do, like a wind-up toy would be, kids who don't routinely know or don't automatically include other people in their activities and their and don't have those those just really frequent interactions with other people like that aren't usually developmentally ready to learn language because language is used for communication and they don't get at that core level that they need to direct their words or attention or gestures. They're talking, let's say for a child who's echolalic, even if they're talking, their words are for them. They're internally motivated or intrinsic or or they're not directed again to include other people. I hope that makes sense to you and I hope that I'm explaining it in a way where you think about a child who might seem like she's so interested in what the toy is doing that she doesn't look up at you. She doesn't notice that you're there. She doesn't routinely know how to direct her attention to you. Now, therapeutically, there's certainly some things that we can do to make that better, (laughs) 
to help a child work on joint attention like that. But remember right now we're just seeing does a kid have that or not. Is this a situation where he looks at me twice in five whole minutes because I've said, ooh, or wow, or done something to make it more likely that he will include me, or is his natural inclination just to do his own thing and look at the toy and observe the toy and try to get the toy to work without once looking at another person for help and or just inclusion, just their reaction. So joint attention is a huge skill, so important for early language development, and we can certainly tell with a toy like a wind-up toy um, if a child is exhibiting that ability or not. The second skill that we can look for, some pretty good initial observations uh, about how a toddler is developing is when we look at his or her cognition. Now, cognition refers to how a child learns and thinks. And so the two big cognitive milestones (laughs) that we can observe with a wind-up toy, first of all, would be cause and effect, meaning that the child understands this happens and then this happens. So there's a relational um, event going on, meaning that the kid somehow understands. And and again, I'm looking for speed here. I'm seeing how quickly a toddler has, how many times he watches me wind it up and then watches the toy do whatever it's supposed to do before he understands, oh, it's that winding that makes it work. And even kids who don't have the fine motor skills or the dexterity, however you want to think about that, even kids who can't do the wind-up part themselves, we should still see an inkling at least that they understand that the winding up is what's caused the movement for the toy. So again, that 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 understanding or that <laughs> they've grasped that, they've learned, aha, it's the winding that makes this toy work. And so that's how we'll know that a child is beginning to understand cause and effect. And again, it's not that he does it. That's not really what we're looking for because we don't expect that many two-year-olds can independently operate a wind-up toy. Again, that's part of the beauty of using this is that the child needs you to be able to accomplish that really fun play activity. And so that's not what we're looking for is that it's not important to me that he be able to do it yet. I'm just looking for that understanding that, ah, I think this is what makes it work. And it could be that he's touching the winder, that he's – you know, when he might be pointing to it, he might, and we'll talk, we'll get to those other kinds of things in a minute, but I just want want some evidence that he is understanding how that toy works. And we'll see that a child, we might see a child who's, who's trying to understand, do some things with the toy, like try to make it move on its own, or I've seen children kind of pick it up and manipulate it a little bit and then put it back down like, okay, why isn't it jumping? Why why isn't this little wind-up frog jumping like it did a second ago? You know, and you can see, I I like to say, you can see their wheels turning. You can see a child when they're really trying to figure that out and they're really 
thinking, you know, and again, they're not able to tell us, hmm, I don't know how this toy works, but we should certainly see from their facial expressions and from the actions they're using that they're trying to understand and they're trying to make sense of how that toy works. So we want to see that. We want to see that they're trying to learn that. Another thing that we can see that's a cognitive skill would be simple problem solving, meaning that a child has seen, let's say you're using a wind-up car. He's seen the car go. He has seen you wind it up. He has watched. And then he gets the toy and tries to make it operate. And, again, you might see all kinds of attempts with that. How, how, what will he do if he can't figure out how to wind it up and make it work? What, what's his next um, you know, what, what's the next thing he'll try? You know, I've seen children throw the toy across the room, meaning I'm mad. I don't know how to make this work. I don't know what else to do about it. I'm frustrated here, and I'm just going to chunk it because I, that's what I've learned how to do. If I, if I don't know what it means, I'm just going to throw it or be aggressive or somehow express my <laughs> displeasure that I've not been able to operate this toy what we would want to see and what would be a more sophisticated or developmentally further along, but what we would like to observe with the child is that he gets, let me hand this to mom or let me hand it to this lady here and see what she can do with it. She was able to make it do things that I can't do. Hmm, let me try that. And do you see how that's problem solving? and communicative and why that would be so important for us when we're looking at a child's initial um, level where he's currently functioning with communication. A child who gets so mad because he can't operate the toy and who tries to do all kinds of things himself unsuccessfully and doesn't know to take that step that another person can help him with that is not really possessing that underlying piece that we can think about as um, communicative intent. And again, he doesn't know, he doesn't get yet that other people are there to help him. And again, his parents may be doing a lovely job of stepping in and helping and doing all the things that loving parents do. And they may not even notice yet that he doesn't really initiate any communication with them. And he doesn't really understand that he's supposed to seek them out when he needs help with something. And so we can look at that. Now, I was talking about this in terms of simple problem solving, but you can see how this overlaps into another area. And again, that would be the third skill that we could look for here, which would be communicative intent, meaning how does he ask for help? What does he do when he has a problem? Does he realize that other people are there and that big people can generally satisfy my need and help me get what I want faster? Do I just go straight to crying because this wind-up toy won't work? You know, I've already given the example of throwing it across the room. Does the child just walk away? meaning that he doesn't get, you know, not only can he not make it work and he doesn't know how to kind of, you know, I'll try to do action A, and if that doesn't work, I'll do action B, and if that doesn't work, I'll do action C, which is what simple problem solving is. But does he not understand that he can take it to that next piece, which we're talking about with communicative intent, and get someone else to do it for him? And again, he may not be able to say, Mother, would you please wind up this toy for me? <laughs> for seeing a kid for speech therapy, they're not doing that, are they? But what does he do? Does he look at mom 
Does he make eye contact with her? Does he use a sad little face like, help me, I can't make this work? Does he cry? And again, is that cry directed to mom or is he just crying because he's a little bit mad about it? Anything like that, any inkling, any little hint that he understands that he can express his frustration to mom and she will help him with that, that's communicative intent too. And it's huge. It's huge. Children who understand that, who who are directing their, even if it's not words yet, if they're directing their gestures and their facial expressions toward mom, those kids are much further along than, say, a child that we talked about earlier, a kid who just walks away because he doesn't know how to make it work and he doesn't know how to get someone else to make it work. So that's a huge, huge piece that we can look at too. So that's the third skill we can assess with a wind-up toy. Let's talk a little bit about receptive language, which is the fourth thing we can look at. And remember, receptive language means what a child understands or how he receives information, how he processes information. So let's think about receptive language here. That's how he understands what you are saying to him during your play together with the wind-up toy. So what are some things you might say? You might say, you know, you're just narrating, but you might also give him some little directions. When he can't do the wind-up toy himself, one of the first things that any adult would do is stick our hands out and say, you know, give it to me. I'll help you or let me do it or I can do that for you. And so does the child understand first your words with give it to me or let me help you or any anything like that, any kind of directive, even uh, even kind of an indirect way to prompt him with, let me have a turn and I, I will make this toy work for you. Is he understanding that? I mentioned the gesture. Does the child need the gesture? Does he have to see your hand before he understands a phrase like, give it to me? Uh, it's so interesting to me. When kids make that switch, you know, I've mentioned before on the podcast that I've been involved in standardizing a new test for infants and toddlers with measuring those, um, all, all those prerequisite skills that lead up and that happen before a child learns how to talk. And one of the prompts there is that we're um, asking a child to give us the toy, and it, it, it's so... <laughs> cool, you know, being the speech geek that I am, looking at when that happens with children, you know, a seven-month-old, and eight-month-old, they're not going to be able to give you the block or, you know, as we're talking about wind-up toys, but when we were doing the other, the standardization of that test, I believe it's a block, but it's so interesting to me that kids who don't, even if they're nearing one, you say, give me the block or give it to me, and they don't do it. You stick your hand out with it saying that, command and ah the light goes on for them they understand oh you want it and then they'll place a block in your hand and again those are things that happen right around that 12 month level I didn't say that with the cognitive skills but I should have cause and effect and simple problem solving both come in right around that 12 month developmental level so if we're looking at a child who's two two and a half three and a half who's not understanding cause and effect, who doesn't really try to solve problems. We know just even with those 
simple activity like a wind-up toy, we can start to suspect that there are problems with cognition, that we're not seeing that they are learning, thinking, remembering like other babies their age. And we would know that children with cognitive issues have difficulty learning to understand language. And guess what? When a kid has difficulty learning to understand language, there's no way he's really ready to use the language meaningfully for communication yet. So it's so connected. And so many of these skills, again, are prerequisites for talking. And so looking back, um, I've kind of, let's see, communicative, no, we're talking about receptive language. <laughs> Certainly receptive language is a prerequisite for talking or expressive language because children need to understand what the words mean and, again, does be able to link uh, labels with objects and with events and with following directions. They have to be able to understand words before they're able to say those words or use those words. And so we can certainly get that information about some initial information about receptive language and taking that to the next step is how even they understand your hand gestures too. And so certainly children start to link meaning with these early gestures that we do, like holding our hands out to get an object, like um, when we want to pick a child up and we instead of maybe we haven't even said, do you want me to hold you or come on, a lot of times parents will just stick their hands out because they're ready to pick the child up. And it's, it's so fascinating to watch at around nine months, ten months, children start to really raise their hands in response to their parents' outstretched arms. And they're letting you know they understand gestures. They understand, ah, oh, and they remember the last 50 times my mom has done this, she's picked me up. Oh, yeah, I'm going to raise my arm so that this makes it easier for her. This is easier for both of us. Or I'm going to lean forward with that intent like, yes, I want you to pick me up. Come on, get me, get me. Those things are so important in the, in the continual span of leading up to learning how to talk. And so when we don't see children understand gestures or and and use gestures, we know those words are going to be late because gestures precede words in typical development and in atypical development too most of the time. So that's certainly something we can do with a wind-up toy is look at a child's ability to understand a request with a gesture and without a gesture. And again, when kids get to the point that they're understanding your words without any of those other cues like we've been talking about with gestures or any of the things, any of the visual things that you're doing to help them understand, like pointing, you know, if you were pointing to the wind-up toy or if you were trying to show them where the little winder worked or how it works or where it is, you might, you know, be pointing and saying, look, look, we have to wind it up, see, right here, right here. So if they're not able to follow a point, they don't, they don't know what you're talking about. And again, a lack of or difficulty understanding gestures is also a core feature of autism. So children who aren't able to follow your point, children who don't understand gestures like holding your hand out, they don't get that they're supposed to give you the toy or give you the sippy cup or, or the sucker or whatever they're holding that you want to help them with when they don't understand that your outstretched hand means give it to me, I will help you. Can you see how those kids are, are not developmentally ready yet to use words? They, they don't get the other person part. They don't get the reciprocity or the, the interaction piece either. 
um, and and they don't understand what your outstretched hand means. It's always funny to me, not funny, but you know, it's an observation that we'll have when we taught a kid how to play give me five and so then every time he sees an outstretched hand he doesn't use it in context meaning that he's holding a sippy cup and mom wants to get a sippy cup he just goes straight for give me five because that's all that that gesture means to him Uh, so that's always kind of an interesting observation and if you're a therapist I'm sure you've seen that before and noticed that before but paying attention to a child's receptive language even in an activity like um, with a mind-up mind toy, you can find out a lot of initial information about how well a child is understanding language. The fifth thing that we can learn from a wind-up toy is looking at what a kid is doing communicatively. And again, we've already talked about intent here when we ask for help, but this kind of takes it to the next level where we're really looking at what gestures did he use. Was he able to say a word to let me know that he wants to do it again? Is he saying a word like again or more or help or um, whatever? It could be that we're looking at a child, how imitative he is with expressive language. Does he copy you when you say, wow, or when you're saying, yay, as the toy jumps? Or will he imitate your... um, clapping as you're clapping for the toy as all of us who work with adults do you know we clap for everything so is he trying to imitate you when you're clapping all of those things are important parts of learning how to talk and so we want to we want to look at that even and again even if he's not saying words there's so many other little things that he could be doing that let you know expressive skills are coming along is he again giving it to me is he gesturing like hey you know turn this on is he looking at me like give me some help here lady I want you I know that you did this and I want you to be able to do it for me and so it's not just what he says or if we've taught him some signs not just that he would know hey I should use my sign here for more or again or please or you know if we've taught him a sign if it's Whatever the specific toy is, I have. I mentioned that little monkey toy that I have. That's a cute thing to get a kid to sign, or a cute way to teach a kid to sign monkey because he's asking for the monkey again. So you know, certainly we can look at those things, and those are obvious when we're talking about how he uses expressive skills. But we also want to pay attention to those. Um, those prerequisite skills, those earlier communicative things like is he using gestures to help you do it now sometimes a child will do something like place your hand on the toy kids with autism will do that a lot too they'll use you as a tool which now I'm not discounting that because when I can get a kid on the spectrum to start realizing that he can use me in that way for some kids that's huge progress huge 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 but at the same time it's not really how typically developing children learn to communicate with other people you know they go straight for asking or using something like eye gaze so that they're looking at the toy and looking back at mom and then looking at the toy again as if to say will you please help me out here and so 
especially in this initial assessment part, we might note if a kid only, if he doesn't really use that nice eye contact or any kind of uh, range of facial expressions here while we're playing, that he would just reach out and get my hand and put it on a toy. That, that would be something I would note too, that I would think, hmm, I need to really explore this. Is he, is he really interacting with people or is he just kind of using that big old hand <laughs> to operate the toy? And these are huge things that we can, you know, clinical observations, clinical impressions that we can make in just a few minutes with a toy like a mind-up toy. Now, sometimes parents will say if their child doesn't, or a therapist too would say, might say this, he just doesn't like any toys. He just, I just can't get his attention. He just, he's so active. He's just running all the time. I can't really get him to pay attention of what, what I want him to do. That in and of itself, when you're introducing a toy that's new like this, that he's probably not had a lot of exposure to, that in, in and of itself, guys, is a red flag. Because if you were looking at children who were truly typically developing, they are going to be all about redirecting their attention and, and, you know, just that natural curiosity with you have a new toy and I want to see how this works. And, again, sometimes with our kids who are with delays, we'll say things like he just doesn't like toys or, hmm, that's just not something he's seen before, so there's so little exposure there that he doesn't have any experience with it, and of course he's not going to pay attention. Those things by themselves let you know that there's a developmental issue going on. And again, if you're seeing him for therapy, you already know that. He's already qualified. He's already eligible. But certainly within that, if you're doing an assessment, it's important information if you can't get a kid's attention with a lot of new toys or if if he's so distracted by um, just doing the one thing he really likes. Let's say he, he's really into Thomas the Train and it, you can hardly divert his attention to something else. You know, that's a red flag. He probably, you know, he's got, he's leaning a little toward that um, <laughs> unusual obsession piece that we see in children with autism so or unusual uh, attachment you know it wouldn't be unusual for him to like Thomas of course but just if he won't ever play with anything else and it's difficult for him to transition to another thing and he's not naturally curious about a really cool additional toy that you might present or another opportunity again that lets you know things are not moving along like you would typically expect for a toddler. So super, super information. Uh, when I've shared this before with other people, I've had, you know, a mom say something like, you know, you can also look at his fine motor skills. He's not able to do that, and I know that he has a fine motor delay. I've mentioned before that the beauty of using a wind-up toy is because you'll hardly have a child at two or even three who has enough uh, fine motor coordination to be able to turn the knob over and over again. Now, three-year-olds, yeah, I'm thinking of some little friends who don't have a problem with that at all. But certainly, that's not what what we would be measuring here. <laughs> We're not going to say a two-year-old has a fine motor delay just because he can't do a wind-up toy because the truth is even typically developing two-year-olds don't have that much control. But with an older kid, let's say that you've had a kid who's nonverbal at five or six, 
and you're working with them and you're cert- you certainly would be able to make some assumptions and some clinical um observations when they can't do a, a wind-up toy at that age, but but not at two. I did want to mention that, particularly for our moms who are listening. So those are the things that you can assess or learn about a toddler with a wind-up toy. And in review, we're going to look at a toddler's joint attention. We can make some initial some initial clinical impressions about their cognitive skills. Remember we said the two that we were looking for are cause and effect and simple problem solving. We're also looking at receptive language. How well does he follow commands and understand gestural commands like your outstretched hand when you're saying, hey, give it to me, give it to me, I'll do it for you. We can certainly look at a child's communicative intent, how he asks what he does when he needs something, how how does that look, what what are the things he already does. So we can certainly look at his pragmatics or his, his again, how he initiates uh, communication, even if he's not talking yet. And lastly, we can look at expressive language here. Is he using any gestures to try to let you know, hey, do this toy for me? Is he saying anything? Is he imitating you? If you are giving him a model of what word he should say, is he able to repeat that? And again, super, super initial information that we can get all from a wind-up toy. If you've not thought about that before, I hope that I've given you some new little tricks or tips for you to use in your session if you are a speech pathologist. If you're a mom... I know some go-getter moms that I've worked with in the past. I can just see you right now thinking, where can I get a wind-up toy? How can I see all this with my kid? Uh, and I love moms like that. I just I just love you. You're the reason that I do this show. So if that's what you were thinking, mm, I, I, you're the kind of mom that, that I do this show for. Uh, so get yourself some wind-up toys and take a look at how the kids on your caseload or your own child are responding Uh, And again, I hope I've given you some new ideas there. I've got a summary that I'll be ready to load in a day or two. If you want a written version of this show so that you can remember the things that you're looking for, and as a therapist, that's certainly an important educational piece for you to share with the parents that you're working with. All right, that does it for today. I love to hear from listeners of the podcast. Please email me, laura at teachmetotalk.com, if you have a question or a comment. And I'm always, always, always looking for moms and therapists who want to be a part of this show. So if you'd like to schedule yourself as a guest, email me. I'd love to have you, laura at teachmetotalk.com. Thanks so much and have a great day. Bye-bye.